1: Hey friends and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host Bethany Lee and this is episode 382. Happy New Year. Happy 2024. We have really, really an amazing series lined up for you for the beginning of this year. And it all starts with this episode. Our guest today is known as the equestrian physio, which blends an understanding of equine science, horses, riding, and our expertise in physiotherapy to really help riders become the best partners to their horses. She has a degree in animal bioscience and equine science, and her journey evolved from really years as an equine vet assistant to pivot towards physiotherapy. So without further ado, please welcome our guest today, Katie Wood.
0: Hi, Katie. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Well,
1: not too bad. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'd love to hear how you first got started in the horse world.
0: Right. So I've, have kind of the quintessential like horse girl story um i grew up on a breeding farm so my my grandparents actually got started in rocky mountain horses so gated horses they were some of the first breeders to bring them up from kentucky and so it was kind of the family business when i was growing up my mom did all of the training my grandparents had all of the brood stock and then i kind of got like the the offhand ones from the herd that I would start and kind of would teach myself um, to ride and to event on. Oh, and cool. so I took riding lessons. Yeah, I took riding lessons when I was like when I started. I don't know, seven or eight. When whenever people start riding lessons, yeah, and kind of made my way up through the eventing levels a little bit. Um, eventually, obviously, I outgrew the the Rockies as as lovely as they are. They are not the most proficient jumpers, so. <laughs> upgraded a little bit to you know thoroughbreds and warm bloods and just you know kind of like catch road for the season whatever anyone was willing to let me get on and then I usually help them sell at the end of the season and then yeah kind of just kept the horse spirit going from there decided to go to university along the similar theme and then just kind of yeah never really gave it up never never grew out of it. That's awesome. And I yeah, I feel like you were saying
1: quintessential. I think that that happens for so many of us, even though our stories are different, that just that aspect of like never quite being able to live without it or grow out of it is so true. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: You now combine your passion for the equestrian world with your work as a physiotherapist. So how did you get started with this work and how did you kind of end up tying it together?
0: Yeah, so I actually had a bit of a backwards way of getting into the physiotherapy profession. Um, I originally went to university uh, thinking or with the intention of being a veterinarian. So my undergrad was in animal biology. My master's was in equine sciences. And I, I was continually trying to get into veterinary school. Um, unfortunately, I just I didn't have the marks to pull it out um, as a undergrad. And so I tried to go through, they had a different pool, a graduate pool that I tried to go through and unfortunately while I was doing my master's I was in not a great car accident and that really was my first exposure myself to any of the rehab sciences like I'd I'd never you know like most riders we never really go and treat our own injuries or (laughs) deal with that side of things and so I learned firsthand how how much breadth there actually is to the rehab professions and that's where at that time I kind of figured okay well if I at, I, if I can't go through the veterinary route, and I can't do these things that I want to do as a veterinarian, maybe I can do it another way. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I started, I, I worked for a little bit as a veterinary assistant, but then my employers at the time, they were really encouraging. And they, they were kind of like, if you want to do this physio thing, like, go for it, we'll help you. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, so they, they helped like write reference letters, and they were really supportive. Um, and I applied to physio school, and I got in. And that was just kind of like, I was like, Okay, yeah, here we go. Here goes the second kind of career.
1: Oh, that's so cool! What? Tell me a little bit about and for those listening who don't know a lot about physio specific work. Tell me a little bit about it.
0: Yeah, so physiotherapy is a profession where we we generally look at things from very much a physical perspective, but that doesn't mean that that's all we look at. So, where your medical doctor will usually look at something from what we call a patho perspective or a pathoanatomical diagnosis, like they will look at imaging, x rays, ultrasound, they will look for like, what is wrong in the picture? What is wrong on your blood work? What is wrong with these testing? Um, And they will kind of come up with a diagnosis from that perspective. From the physiotherapy side of things, we look a lot more at your symptoms and your function. And so I don't, you know, while imaging and those kinds of things inform what I do, I have seen it far too many times where someone will have really aggressive looking arthritis, for example, on imaging, and they're like, "Ah, I just wake up a little stiff in the morning, but I'm fine. And then I will see it where people have very minimal changes on their imaging, and they are in debilitating pain. And so it's, it's just we take that with a grain of salt. And we look much more at how is a person functioning in their life? Are they capable of doing the things they want to do? what range of motion or what muscular or strength or pain symptoms are or impairments are impairing them from from doing the things that we want to do and then we build out our treatments generally from the physical side relying very heavily on exercise therapy with the help of manual work modalities things like that to get people to rebuild those impairments and get them back to doing the functional things that they want to do.
1: That's so cool. I love that. I I know another aspect of what you do is performance coaching. So how do you work with riders to make sure that they're performing their best?
0: Yeah, and that's where I mean, at the end of the day, it really no, looks no different, you know, from a physiotherapy side of things, I'm usually um, looking at things a lot more like pain becomes a much bigger component, because that's often the driver of people will will seek physiotherapy due to pain symptoms. But from a performance perspective, you know, it's all the same kind of impairments, usually other than pain. And even then, you know, riders, like most of them do have pain, they're just not telling you. Um and we're, we're approaching it the same way. So I will screen people from, from mobility deficits, strength deficits, asymmetries, head to toe. And then from a performance side of things, I will also listen to, you know, what are they struggling with? Is it a, you know, left canter transition? Is it they feel like they can't engage their right seat bone? Do they feel like their left leg is always slipping forward? And I will start to put the pieces together of what I'm finding on a physical assessment, and what they're telling me to say, like, okay, yeah, this is feeding into this. This is why you're experiencing that. And then we come up with a plan to address those from a physical side of things.
1: That's I, that's so cool. When you are working with someone, is, are they, you know, like closely involved in? A program like what do the I guess like what does the program look like for you that you're really able to make those assessments clearly and and really understand where the pain or the abnormalities are coming from?
0: Yeah, so so much of it is listening and education. Um, Because I do a lot of virtual work, too. Obviously, I can't put my hands on people. And visually, I can assess people, you know, Mm -hmm. as I can say, move your hip this way. And I can see kind of one side compared to the other. But for the most part, it's listening to their complaints, it is putting the pieces together from the story that they're telling me. And then when it comes to planning the actual rehab process, or the performance coaching process, it is very much listening to how they are able to integrate this into their life, what barriers are they going to face? Because, you know, not all of us have time to go to the gym four days, five days a week. Like that's just not realistic for everybody, especially horse people, if you own your own barn, that's it's hard. And so I'm always listening, you know If someone has four kids and they're trying to ride three horses a day, like that makes a big difference versus someone who's like 22 and just has the one that they're competing. And so that it becomes a very collaborative process when it comes to not just prescribing exercises and deciding how we're going to formulate this program and and what sort of the dosage dosage is going to be for these Mm. things, but very much a, okay, what are the barriers that you see to implementing it? Because I can write the best program in the world and it doesn't matter if a person just doesn't have it within their life. Like the capability, the time, the capacity to do it. And so sometimes it's like, it's sometimes people want a really comprehensive program and I'm like, okay, here's like a four day a week, um, you know, upper body, lower body and like full body split. And you know, it's like an hour and a half exercise with some cardio. And then some people are like, you know, here's three things that mm-hmm. you sh- if you do them really consistently and really well they will make a hell of a difference. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah, I mean yeah, it's so it seems like it's so case by case and I'm sure with all of the people that you have seen, you must have seen some really interesting or like really big challenges. What would you feel like are some of the big issues you find or common common issues that you find when working with riders?
0: I think just a lack of inherent knowledge is part of it. And I don't, I don't say that in a blaming way. It's, you know, I grew up doing pony club and I had like an Irish eventing coach. And so like, I had a lot of the same basics that most people do, but in this industry, I feel like we're just, we don't get the same education in strength and conditioning principles in dry land training in how to perform exercises and how to train your own body off horse. how to how to uh, you know manage your own nutrition your hydration your recovery all of these things they're just they're not an inherent part of what we learn as young riders unfortunately and I don't know if that's just because You know, equestrian for a long time was just like a mode of transportation. It wasn't it wasn't necessarily a sport. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of became a sport in like the, you know, 20th, 21st century. So it's um, it's different that way versus a lot of other sports have always been sports. And so I don't know if that's it or if there are other reasons, but it's just that that knowledge base doesn't exist as much. And I find that's a big barrier, which is why so much of what I do is simply education. It's simply like, here's how you program a strength and conditioning program for yourself. Here's kind of the minimum you should do. Here are the recovery basics, those kinds of things. What are some things you've noticed from people
1: that you've worked with, from riders that you've worked with, who um, didn't do a lot of Conditioning or um, physical exercise outside of riding, but then implemented one of your programs. What what are what are some things you hear from them about what they've experienced or like any changes or improvements in their riding
0: or everyday life? Mm-hmm. I think body awareness is a huge component, because once you start learning how to isolate your joints in different exercises, Mm. how to feel loading your muscles in different ways. um, You know, if you if you're doing a maximal deadlift, like, guess what, you are really feeling your glutes and your hamstrings engage. And I jokingly say too, like, it's, you know, the muscle soreness that you get after a good workout, I Mm -hmm. actually think and this is this is anecdotal, but I actually think that probably helps to improve body awareness too, because you're like, Oh, I didn't realize I used my quads this much until they hurt. Yeah. And so, like some of those things, like a little bit of stiffness, you know, after a workout, feeling your muscles when you're doing these exercises, feeling yourself be able to isolate specific joints. That is a huge thing that I find riders get a benefit out of these programs. And on top of that is a lot of addressing their own asymmetries. Because the number of times... I, I prescribe a lot of single leg, single arm work as part of my programming because riding is such a sport of like nuance and being able to control things in really isolated ways. So I often I'll train heavy compound lifts, but I'll often um, prescribe really isolated single legs and arm work as well. And having riders come back to me and say, I had no idea that my left leg was, you know, only like feels like 60% strong as my right Wow! until you're getting them to do. And especially when we test it objectively, like for example, if I'm testing your riders kind of, you know, quad strength, like quad and glute strength, I'll get them to do a single leg, sit to stand. So just standing on one leg kind of off of a bench or something that's fairly low. How many times can you get up and down without losing control and without putting the other leg down? Mm. And they'll get something like, you know, 18 on one side and like five on the other. Yeah.
1: And they had no
0: pain. They had no issues. They're just like, oh, wow,
1: I had no idea. Right. What are some what are a few exercises that you feel like any rider as like a baseline could benefit from?
0: Yeah, a lot of it, I think, is just comes back to some of our functional movements. And uh, one of the most basic programs that I'll, I'll tell people to sort of build their own exercise framework in involves kind of six components. And so it's a a squat exercise, a hinge or like a deadlift exercise, um, a push. So usually an upper body, like a a push up or a bench press or something, a pull. So um, like a row or a pull up or some sort of like, usually you can go vertical or horizontal there, Um, a lunge. So that's when you're getting into your single leg work. And usually I also like to mix in lateral work as well and some sort of core or carry exercise. And so if you're kind of putting those together, like you've got a squat, hinge, push, pull, lunge, and core or carry, and you just pick one exercise within each one of those categories, like pick a squat variation, pick a deadlift variation, pick a push variation, and you progress that same exercise over you know six, eight, 12 weeks. And then you just go back to that same framework and you're like, okay, now I'm gonna pick a new squat exercise. Now I'm gonna pick a new hinge exercise. And really that is one of the easiest and most simple ways to build a really straightforward full-body program um, and really keep consistent with it because that's something you know that most people can do in half an hour, 40 minutes if they're being um, pretty productive. And if you get that in twice a week, I guarantee that will make a pretty big difference if you haven't already been training. Yeah, I love that.
2: We are moving into our new home this year and something I'm so excited about is to fill the house with equestrian art because not only is it just so classic while being so timeless, I think it really aligns and and fits in with any type of interior decor and style. I found an equine artist a couple years ago back when I first was introduced to her amazing equine art calendars. I've been using them for a few years now. I think this is my fourth calendar of hers, Um, but her name is Steffi Hornig, and she is one of the most talented equine artists I think I've ever met, and something I really love about her methodology is she really prefers to really get to know the personality of the horse and then paint them, you know, to really try to capture who that horse is. Um, And so I just really think that shows through in her art and really sets it apart. For more information, if you're looking for a calendar, I think there are a few 2024 in stock. I just got mine and I am obsessed with it. One of our horses is actually the month of February, which she did so perfectly. So to get more information, visit her website at Steffi SteffiHornigEquineArt.com for more information about how she does what she does and, and for you to get your hands on some art or getting her to paint one of your horses. So again, that website is Steffi Equine art.com. All right, let's get back to the episode.
1: I feel like something that seems to be coming more popular is mobility and range of motion flexibility. And Mm -hmm. you're someone that has known the benefits of mobility for a long time and train your clients on that. So why do you think mobility training is so important for overall health and specifically for
0: riding? Yeah. So one of my lines that I I literally I should put it on a t shirt, I say so much is um, motion will always come from somewhere. So if you are riding an extended canter, for example, and you run out of extension in your hips. So if you picture that extended canter as your pelvis is kind of moving forward on the saddle, you're you're having to absorb the horse's back rolling under you and your hips. So your thigh bone on your pelvis have to extend. Now, if you run out of hip extension, like you, you hit a point where, okay, I don't have any more to give out of my hip. Guess where that motion is now going? It has to go up into your low back. Hmm. So now instead of your hip taking the majority of that extension, your low back is now taking an additional extension. Hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like our body is meant to absorb forces this way, but then what happens if your low back runs out of extension? Well, at that point, you know, you're going to, either get pitched forward because you have run out of your ability to absorb that horse's motion, or you kind of slam into your horse's back, which they don't appreciate very much. And it's the same with all kinds of different motions. Like motion is always coming from somewhere. If you have ankle stiffness, then your knees are going to take the brunt of it. Mm. If you have hip stiffness, your knees or your low back are going to take the brunt of it. It's always going to come from somewhere. And so that's where having access to, more range of motion and not just having access to it, but being able to control your body in those external, like really outside ranges is really key so that we're not just going to get plopped around basically when our horse is trying to perform these big movements underneath us and we run out of room and get thrown off balance or we get put into a position where we don't have control of our joint and we get thrown off balance. hmm. Yeah.
1: I think that um, something that we haven't really touched on yet that you work with for a lot of of your riders is rehabbing after an injury. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that process, how you kind of. Um, determine what ne- what's, you know, like the root of the issue or what has happened, whether it's a fall or even a non-related riding injury and, and trying to ride the most effective way possible as they're kind of coming back. What are, what are some things you kind of go through for your process for your riders?
0: Yeah, so from an injury rehab perspective, it always starts with an assessment. And so the number one piece is hearing the rider's story, taking what we call a subjective history. And so that's where, you know, I'll always ask, like, what happened? Can you describe the mechanism for me? You know, how did you fall? Where did you fall? Um, what kind of torque forces were happening there? Did you fall on a jump? Did you fall into a wall? Did the horse fall with you? All those kinds of things. Um, and then I'm getting a sense of what kind of symptoms they're experiencing. So is there pain? Where is it? When does it come on? What is the pattern of pain throughout the day? Um, Is there, you know, things that aggravate it, any particular movements or or sitting or standing, like different things that aggravate it more? Are there things that you have found that relieve it? You know, and that's where I can use clues. Like if an inflammatory is working, that tells me there might be an inflammatory component to this pain. If it's not working, it tells me it might not be an inflammatory driver. Um, Stuff like that, you know, ice or heat and, and how those are working is all informing my decision. And then after sort of getting a real sense of how the injury happened, and even if it wasn't a traumatic injury, if maybe it's something that's been kind of a climate, like accumulating for a long period of time, I'm getting a sense of the timelines there as well. Then we're diving a little more into, you know, what what is your life like? You know, what is this rider Um what do they do for work? What is their riding like? What are their goals? How is their horse? What discipline do they ride in? what uh, level you know like what kind of saddle um, what kind of equipment stirrups stephen I'll ask about and often that's that's informing my process as well because someone who rides in a regularly in an event in close contact saddle or you know a jockey for example like a a flat racing jockey is going to ride very differently than a someone riding in a cwd dressage saddle right um and so that's that's all informing not just my just my sort of process thinking process about the injury itself but like that's informing what i am going to be prescribing and how i'm going to be building this plan And then from there, we'll often move into more of a physical testing. So I'll usually screen the rider kind of head to toe looking at gross motor patterns. So, you know, looking at their neck movement, their back movement, their shoulder movements, um, squats, balance, all of those kinds of things. Then we dive into much more specific testing for isolating tissues as as much as we can, you know, you're never going to completely be able to isolate a muscle separate from a ligament, but we try. And so then we're testing kind of like the joints through passive range of motion, separate from the muscles through resisted muscle testing, um, separate from like ligaments, where we'll do some stress testing, if it was something traumatic, and I'm worried about a ligament injury, Um, we'll test nerves as well, because often there can be neurodynamic problems, either your nervous system is intolerant to being put on tension or pulled, or we can even have nerve injuries like a disc injury or something that can cause pain in referred areas. And, you know, I'm always also too scanning for, is there anything in this assessment that doesn't make sense? If the pieces aren't coming together, if it's not fitting something like a pattern that I know, you know, like a tendinopathy, for example, has a specific pattern, osteoarthritis presents in a specific way, Uh, traumatic knee ACL injury will present in a specific way. And if there are things that just don't add up, and are making me, you know, sending red flags in my mind, I can always, and I will always be referring back to your doctor for further imaging, you know, if I'm suspicious of, for example, a autoimmune disorder like rheumatoid arthritis, or if I'm suspicious of like a malignancy, and so those things are always in the back of my head. And then from there, like once basically we get all the pieces, um, it's it's essentially a matter of either I come up with some sort of diagnosis, um, which usually is is kind of, you know, a moot point anyway, like, like we don't need the diagnosis to inform our treatment plan. Sometimes it's just people appreciate a label. So it's nice. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just a list of here are the things that we need to work on here are the things from either your training volume, or your intensity, or your movement patterns, or your strength that are all playing into the reason that you were having this problem, or, you know, that are all impairments that have been a result of your fall. And that list is basically informs our treatment plan. If we've got five things on the list, we're coming up with treatments that are going to address those five things. Totally. Yeah. I love that. Yes. What
1: is there any like overlap or what do you kind of notice in not just your riders, but also your horses, like, especially with having the, like the vet career as the initial interest um, yeah. and your, your understanding in equine health and anatomy, really, how, how does that kind of cross over?
0: Yeah, so that, um, I will say it was kind of funny that having that background when I went into physio school because I had a much deeper understanding of the medical side of things than mm-hmm. I would say a lot of my my peers had because most most physios go in, from a pretty traditional, you know, background of, oh, I did sports as a kid and I worked as a physio with a physio and I really liked it. So I decided I wanted to be a physio. So then I did a kinesiology undergrad degree. And then I went to physio school and not that there's anything wrong with that pathway, but I I went in like, oh yeah, no, I did animal stuff. (laughs) And then I worked as a vet assistant. So I had a really great understanding of diagnostic imaging and its use and its uh, potential overuse and drawbacks as well. And I, and that was really helpful. And as well as the medical side of things. So I worked in a sports medicine practice. We mostly worked on standard bred racehorses. Um, we did some broodmare stuff. Like I did some general stuff as well, but I did a lot of standard bred racehorse work. Hmm. And so I I gained a really solid understanding of injection therapies, which was really interesting. As well as the diagnostic side of things. And he really appreciated that background going in. But then something that I found as I progressed through my physio training was potentially a little bit more of a, an understanding and a respect for how much they are actually overused in the mm. industry. And it's not to say that there aren't horses out there that would that benefit from injections and do benefit from injections. But oftentimes when you think of these things and even, you know, the gadgets as well, like the PEMF blankets and the lasers and the Theraplates and all of those kinds of stuff, you know, they're they're useful, but they are band-aids. They are not the things that make it better. They are the things that cover up the symptoms. And so that is something that I've really brought forward is Having that knowledge about all of these devices, all of these injection therapies, all of these diagnostic imaging techniques and how they work and why we use them. But then now bringing in my physiotherapy knowledge of, okay, I think we we do tend to overuse these things a little bit. And in some respect, it would be useful to have a few more rehab voices in the industry saying, hey, but there's actually another way as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely.
1: What would you say is an area of the horse world that you are especially passionate about that you feel like the rest of the industry either just doesn't know a lot
0: about or doesn't talk that much about? I think one of the big things of it is coming back to this educational component. So the fact that um, we don't know that much inherently about as riders about how to train our own bodies and one of my I didn't coin this I stole it from Maeve Sheridan who runs activate your seat um, her own Instagram page and and she has a a really good strength program as well but (laughs) your horse is not your gym And I really want to put that one on a t-shirt as well, Yeah, is that we tend, like, how many times have you seen a lesson, for example, where you've got a group of five or six riders that are trotting around the edge in two points, you know, as they're conditioning, quote unquote. And I look at that now and I did it too. Like I was the kid that did it and I was the coach that would make kids do it. But I look at that now and I go, why are we training our riders like that when they could potentially get off their horse, put their horse away, come back and do a few sets of squats Mm -hmm. and learn how to condition their own bodies, learn how to feel their own muscles, learn how to balance on their own. It's something that I think doesn't exist in our industry as much. But if we can start to learn and apply and integrate these principles more it would be very beneficial to riders and their own capacity to improve themselves and the horses in that now they would not have to struggle with riders who are asymmetrical who are unbalanced you know on their backs and we all have the right to learn too like i'm not saying that people aren't allowed to be sloppy riders and learn and and make mistakes because that we all we've all had many ugly jumps in our lives but at least taking taking the initiative to say okay yes my horse is not my gym and I have the responsibility to show up as the fittest, strongest, and most capable rider that I can so that my horse, like my time in the saddle is spent on building the skills mm. and my time out of the saddle is spent on the building blocks, the strength, the mobility, the control. I love that. I think that is so important and definitely
1: you totally need to make that into a shirt.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so I know true, I'll, I'll have to like I'll have to send some of the royalties to Maeve Sheridan though because I don't know if she used that specific wording but she was the one that coined it.
1: Yeah, no, it's such a such a great thing, such a great reminder and you know, they're not a a mode of fitness or or any goal that you should be getting into the saddle ready to mm-hmm. give your 100% best and you Absolutely. know, I think that so often it can be seen as, you know, a way to get stronger. I also feel that way sometimes, and this might be a bit of a tangent, but, um, in terms of, you know, we're just finishing no stirrup November, which is often used and very popular, especially in the hunter jumper world. And I'm a, I'm a hunter jumper trainer and I don't I don't really do that because I just, I actually find that my um, clients develop more strength doing things, you know, outside of the saddle, but also things like going up in your two point and strengthening your lower leg. And it's so much easier on the horse's back. And I just think, wow, like a full month of having to pound down on your horse's back. It's just a lot. It can be a lot.
0: So well, I and from an injury like perspective, that. too, right? Like I often find, you know, I uh, would say, probably 90% of the injuries that walk through my door, you know, that aren't like um, a traumatic injury, like a fall or something are I overuse type injury. And that is from, you know, we, we call the rule of twos too much too fast too soon after too little for too long. And no stirrups November is 100% that it is okay, you didn't ride no stirrups more than, you know, half a dozen times all year. And now you're going to decide to do a whole month of it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. your horse is going to hate you and your body's going to hate you. Right, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's so true. Um yeah, mm-hmm. I think wow. There there I think there's there's several t-shirts you could make just from what yes. we
0: talked about today. There's going to be some co-branded merchandise coming out after the show. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's oh, a joke. I but love yeah. It.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Katie, thank you so much for taking the time to come on, share your story and your knowledge and expertise. I think that there are amazing reminders and things that all of us can work on as riders, but thank you so much and I wish you
0: all the best.